Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Nervous Ending Podcast. Today we have a special guest with us. Her name is Helen Stickney. She is a death doula and a grief counselor and a meditation coach, formerly a linguistics professor. She talks with us about the various lessons she has learned through working with death as her advisor. Thank you for listening. Hi, Justin. What are you doing? Oh, just putting together my ad for the podcast. Oh, great. What's the ad? You know how I do the acupuncture and herbs and supplements and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, I was thinking maybe I can cross over and share some of what I'm doing there with our podcast listeners. Oh, neat. Yeah, so I've been putting together these protocols. One of them is called Cellular and Energetic Essentials. Mm-hmm. It includes some green drinks powder with sea vegetables and beetroot and other vegetables. It's got some vegan D3. There's also a mitochondrial support formula, including ubiquinol. It's got some zinc for some good DNA action. You know, the good stuff. Nice. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware, but I've been watching mitochondria videos late at night. Wow, that is quite an obsession. I've been learning about the energy producers in our cells. They're important. How you can amplify that with certain nutrients. Ooh, that sounds good. So if people go to your website... They get a discount on these supplements? Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. I use a company called Bullscript, and if they go to my website, they'll be brought to a landing page where they can sign up and save 10% off of their supplements. So is this just for mitochondrial support? Is this like uh, vitamins and any supplements that I take? Uh, pretty much anything. They got over 20,000 supplements. Cool. So so I can probably get my vitamins there. and You can get your vitamins. Minerals. You can get your ubiquinol. You can get your minerals. Nice. I've also put together a mushroom formula. Ooh, that sounds good. Because remember, we were talking to Helen about mushrooms. We were talking about mushrooms, yeah. We were talking about a different kind of mushrooms. I don't think they'd sell those on this site. No, probably not yet. Even. But you know Paul Stamets? Well, not personally, but yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's got this company, Host Defense, and they have his stuff there. Yeah, cool. That's a good stuff. It's a mushroom coffee. Nice. Yeah, so you can get all that stuff and save 10%. Awesome. And check out the protocols I put together. Very cool. And you can get all of that at heavenlystreams.com slash nerve ascending. Yeah. Support us and get a discount. Woohoo. Full disclaimer. This is my, my website, heavenlystreams.com. Okay. So we've been disclaimed and we've run the ad. What should we do next? Well, we should probably talk about Helen. Yeah, we should talk about Helen and we should get that organ recorded. Okay. Like when somebody is actively dying, mm-hmm. I am more fully present than I am most of the time. Leaving dead animals where they are so that that, that piece of the ecosystem can be revitalized. I don't remember dying. Don't remember being born. This young woman for, like after, she, she said to me, she said it felt like I was on a mushroom trip. Drugs can take you where meditation takes you, but the problem with drugs is that they wear off. Reality is actually so much more magical than we are able to perceive in the day-to-day because we're so focused on capitalism. (laughs) You ever jump out of an airplane? I know, but I want to really badly. I envision a reintegration of death into our culture. Thanks for for talking with us. Absolutely. So we, let's see, what, um, now I, I am interested in finding out more about 
what it is you do. So you are a death doula. I am. Um, you hear that the pause in my voice. Um, I would say, so I am trained as a death doula. And death doulas are becoming really popular now, especially because of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and there's sort of a canonical idea of what a death doula is. And it is what I'm trained to do, but it's not what I actually do. So I'm happy to give you both if that's helpful. Sure. Yeah, so a death doula, like a birth doula, is a non-medical person who provides emotional, physical, spiritual support for dying persons and their families. Cool. So an ideal death doula situation, some people say end-of-life doula because they don't want to make people freak out because of the word death. Um, Because sometimes it's really hard to get people to engage with you if you mention death at all, even if they are actually dying. Um, So I may use the term end-of-life doula interchangeably also. Mm. But sort of the ideal uh, death doula situation is someone's given a terminal diagnosis. They know that they have a, they know that they have a relatively finite period of time to live. I mean, obviously you all do, but you know, they have a sense that that is near mm-hmm. and they would ask a death doula to be part of that process. So a death doula might even be engaged six months before someone dies to help them put their affairs in order help them make their peace with death, sort of process it, talk with the, you know, support the family through, you know, processing what is to come and discussing, well, what, how do we want this to go? What might be the ideal situation? What are our contingency plans? You know, even what music that I want playing, that sort of thing. So helping people sort of approach the end of life in a way that feels most in alignment with their values, their ideals. And I, you hear in the... In a lot happening right now, you hear people talk about a good death, which mm-hmm. is a phrase that I actually find to be a setup. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that aside for a moment. But really, we're trying to help people have the best end-of-life experience that they can have. Nice. Um, right. And then a death doula might sit, sit vigil as the person's dying. But really, the death doula's role is to be a support person and really center the family, center the dying person, center the loved ones, and have it be their experience. And the death doula is just kind of keeping an eye on all of it to make sure things are going well and to help help with that. And then after after the death, help with the all the other things that come afterwards that I could also talk about. Um, that's sort of a very, very basic overview. As of right now, there's no licensure for this sort of thing, and there are a broad range of trainings and especially because death doulas are now in. There's a lot of different trainings, and people can spend a lot of money to get uh, certified to do this work. Cool. Interesting. How did you get into this? Because you went from being a a linguistics professor Mm -hmm. to, yeah, to now being a death doula. And I wonder if, you know, how, anyway... How did you get into this? And does and is are is there any connection to the to linguistics? I guess or or what? Um, sorta. I want to say before we go any further that my primary focus in the world of end of life care right now is uh, contemplative approaches to grief. So I mostly work with people who have lost someone or who are facing loss um, to process their grief through meditation, through prayer, through other sorts of. Uh, um, spiritual processes. Oh, cool. 
how I got there as well. Um, yeah, so as I have continued to review my life as I age, um, I have come to the conclusion that I got a PhD out of fear. Um, so I was a really smart kid who did well in everything. And then I did a semester of college where I didn't do so well because I was really much more interested in exploring life than I was in, uh, sleeping, <laughs> doing my homework, you know, that sort of thing. So I almost flunked out, decided to take a year off, ended up in a rather difficult relationship, but also ended up pregnant. Um, and I, at the point of deciding that I uh, was going to have a child, I said, you know, uh, or actually I have profanity on this podcast. <laughs> So I was like, oh, shit, I got to do something with my life. I really liked linguistics in that one, you know, semester that I took. I didn't even take a linguistics course. I just knew I liked languages. Right. Right. Because um, I had been like, I'd been studying languages since I was about six. And I was like, I like that. I'll do that. And I moved into a college dorm with my baby and started studying linguistics and then you know, happened to be in the state of Maine, which had a program, a sort of secret program at that time where you could be on welfare and go to college at the same time. And that sort of supported me through undergrad. And then I didn't know what else to do. So I just kept going and got accepted to the PhD program in the country and went in as a single mom and they only accepted five people a year. And I was like, I'm smart. I can do this. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, but I didn't know I could quit because I'd always done everything, right? right? And so I ended up with a PhD in linguistics. I ended up with a lot of chronic illness from stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I got hired out of grad school before I'd even uh, filed my dissertation. Wow. Uh, got a job at the University of Pittsburgh teaching linguistics. And over the next six years of being a linguistics professor, I slowly killed my career because I wasn't publishing. Like, to be successful in academia, you have to publish. And Mm. more interested in my relationship with my students and being an excellent teacher and and my research than I wasn't actually writing anything. For some reason, I think subconsciously I knew I was in the wrong field. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so much that I didn't love language, that academia wasn't what I was suited for. Mm. I've just always been told you know, in our culture, intelligence equals school, mm-hmm. right? right? I didn't even know you could just not go to school and still be smart. I thought smart people had to go to school. Mm. And I found language fun. <laughs> you know, language is awfully fun. And so, um, and I, you know, I was looking at, I, my PhD was in uh, psycholinguistics, and I was specifically looking at how children acquire language as a window into the natural state of the brain when we're born and the nature of language itself, like how did language evolve? Oh, right? cool. How, yeah, like what is it that we are born with that enables us to learn language? Like what's that map? What is, you know, and... Um, is that like mirror neurons? Well, the thing is, is I was uh, possibly, right? <laughs> so neurolinguistics has become the new thing. And when I was, I was right on the edge of the shift in focus. So I was trained in... Uh, very strict Chomskyan linguistics, which believes that actually there was a map hmm. 
kind of like a switchboard with all the switches open, that the, all the possibilities for what, what language could be were already encoded when we were born, and it was like a specific language map. And then you hear your parents' language, and you set all the switches to the right um, settings. And Interesting. Then, and then that's how you acquire language. So I was looking at trying to figure out what the switchboard was. But as I progressed in the field of linguistics, more and more neurobiology became the focus and is probably more correct, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, is that legit, the universal language processor? Um, I've seen some pretty compelling evidence. Um, I should say that I lived in Nicaragua for a while and worked with the deaf population there, and Nicaraguan Sign Language is one of the it was one of the hot topics in the 90s around this idea of, um, right, this universal language. Uh, gosh, I, it's been, I've been out of academia for so long, I can't even remember all the terms. <laughs> My sincere apologies, but I can talk about concepts real well. Right, so the story of Nicaraguan Sign Language being that in previous to the Sandinista Revolution, the deaf were kept in their home. And they base it effectively had no access to language whatsoever. Oh. And 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 the deaf the deaf were pre- treated pretty poorly and considered just completely mentally incompetent. And so um, there was you know most deaf people seventies and earlier had um, you know maybe five signs that they used and their family filled in the rest. And then when the Sandinistas came into power, they started forming social programs, including schools for the deaf, and they bust all these deaf kids in together, and um, the teenagers started, like, comparing signs and figuring out, you know, like, making up some stuff, but it was a really sort of rudimentary language. And then the younger kids, like 10 and under, looked at what the older kids were doing, and they regularized it. Right. They added the syntax. They added the, the little, you know, the little like tense endings and the, the inflections on, you know, nouns and verbs and things like they were the ones who like just naturally took what the teenagers were doing and uh, created a system that would looked like natural language in a way that the teenagers language didn't. And I, I you can sort of. Um, liken that to an adult trying to learn a second language versus a kid trying to learn a second language, right? There's that, there's that window in which it's really easy for the brain to, to learn new languages, right? Now, even as I'm saying this, I'm hearing neuroplasticity, like the neuroplasticity alarm is just going, and it's, you know, maybe it has very little to do with um, there being a, a natural set of rules related to language in particular. Maybe there's just a natural way that the brain organizes information in general, right? Um, but everybody was studying Nicaraguan sign language in particular because it was one of the few opportunities linguists had to see a language be born where there wasn't, you know, it wasn't coming from something that the parents already spoke. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it was really cool. So it went from like a pigeon to almost like a patois. Exactly, that's exactly it was exactly how it was described, right? Was, there was a lot, lot of, lot of people who studied pigeons and creoles would were part of that exploration of um, Nicaraguan sign language for sure. Huh. 
Interesting, yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, when I moved in Nicaragua, I learned way more about what it meant to be deaf in a third world country than I did necessarily learn about <laughs> the syntax of Nicaraguan sign language. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, what were you going to ask? I don't know, suddenly I'm thinking syntax might not be as important as I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we were getting to how you went from linguistics to to your current path, I guess. So... <laughs> So after my son was born, I got really sick um, from stress and got a few and was given a few autoimmune diagnoses. So I, I kind of had chronic health issues from my early 20s. But um, as I continued being a college professor, I started getting really sick. And I had a sense that it wasn't that there was some diagnosable thing wrong with me. It was more that there was something about my life that I was doing I had this idea that I was doing something wrong, and if I just shifted my lifestyle, I would be okay. So instead of going to my primary care physician, I started seeing an herbalist slash shaman, amazing human being. And um, she slowly helped me to shift my diet and encouraged me to meditate more. And just the more I started caring for myself, the more I started realizing that the way I was living in relation to my job, I was working 80 hours, 80, 90 hours a week for a salary position. Like nobody told me to do that. I was just obsessed with working. And I realized my relationship to work was making me sick, but the structure of academia was such that I was not going to be able to shift my relationship to work while still staying in it. Meanwhile, I had a permanent position at the University of Pittsburgh. They hired me for... The story, I was hired for a one-year position to fill in while they search, and that was 2008, and the economy tanked, and they had a hiring freeze, so they kept hiring me back uh, to a one-year position for a total of six years. And by the time, the statute of limitation was three years, it's a long story, but by the time the second statute of limitations was up, I knew I wasn't going to even try to stay in academia anymore. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was completely lost. So I knew in the fall of 2013 that it was my last year. Mm -hmm. Um, And just life kind of didn't let me do much about it. Like the the, the, the first half of that school year ended up really having to be about accepting the end of things and the was accepting not knowing because anytime I tried to make anything happen, it would like completely, I would just get this big no from life. You know, um, I mean, it was weird. Like I remember writing to a friend of mine uh, who was a teacher at a boarding school just to ask like, or what, what am I look like for me to work there? Or what, what could I offer? And I got a formal rejection letter as if I'd applied for a job where I was just trying to start a casual conversation. Wow. You know, it was just constant no's like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I just let go. I was like, I didn't know what else to do, so I didn't do much of anything. And I still didn't know what I was doing, and the semester ended. Um, and I had unemployment for a little bit. And then... I cannot explain it to you any differently than I suddenly got a calling mm-hmm. to work with the dying. Nice. Made no sense. <laughs> Straight. It's like some people end up being death because 
amazing death experience with a loved one or a terrible death experience. Right. Something inspired them. And I just like had voices in my head and a knowing had a calling. Nice. that I had to work with the dying. Wow. And it made no sense to me beyond the fact that I'd never had anything like that happen to me before. I was also the typical, never seen a dead body. I mm-hmm. Maybe one, two funerals, maybe. Um, and I always just been like, but my family had kept me away from death and I was young. I didn't, you know, like, and so it hmm. didn't make any sense. But I was also seeing a career counselor at the time, and the career counselor didn't didn't even know what linguistics was, so she was really struggling to help me. Right. And I said something to her, like after after that experience, I the next time I saw her, I said, you know, I'm I'm thinking maybe something with like hospice. And she looked at me and she said, "You're not a Reiki practitioner, are you?" And I was like, "Well." Yeah, actually, I know how to do Reiki, you know, because I had uh, been in, uh, what is it called, attuned in the 90s. Uh-huh. And within a week, I was volunteering as a Reiki practitioner at two different hospices. Wow. And, like, yeah. And, cool. um, and the second I set foot in the hospice environment, uh, I just immediately was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Nice. And it kind of progressed from there. Interesting. Yeah. Now, since you have, well, obviously, because you've been working with, I mean, working with end-of-life care, I'm assuming that you've since then had experiences with death, obviously, and people, um, you know, have seen, I don't know if you've, well, I'm assuming that you've seen a dead body and you've, you know, had experiences with people who are in the process of you know, trans, uh, um, passing over, <laughs> yeah, passing over. Yep. So that must be, I don't know, how has that been for you? And have you, has it shifted your views of, I guess, I don't know what your views of death or the afterlife or if there's any th- continuation of consciousness after death, but ha- has that experience, uh, yeah, how has it um, impacted you and maybe, like, shifted your view of of that? It's a great question. I think it's been a slow dawning. Like, there wasn't a moment where I was like, oh, wait a minute. Everything I believed has been challenged, right? And part of that is to explore my own connection to spirituality and my own spiritual ideas. Um but it's been a slow shift and a slow understanding over the last, so let's see, that that calling came in 2014 and 2022 now, so over the last eight years. Um, I've slowly come to see death as one of my closest advisors. Um, in just in my daily life, like every day, when I'm trying to make a decision or I need to check in about, you know, how I'm living my life, I always think about death. Like, if I died today, would I be okay with how I'm living my life? You know, if I died today, would I make decision A or decision B, <laughs> you know? And, Whoa. Um, oh, yeah. And that, yeah. first that was a radical act to start considering that. And now it's like supernatural and it is, uh, it is, it is super. Supernatural. Although <laughs> well, they're all supernatural. supernatural things that have started happening. <laughs> wow. Uh, 
uh, yeah, there's also like a ton of metaphysical stuff that has emerged, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But I realized that my life is so much less goal-oriented now. Hmm. I really don't worry about accomplishing things. I mean, I have goals, and I, I have I have things that I work toward, but I'm not like getting there is not as important, if that makes any sense. Like, it's, it's all, I I don't want to sound cliche and say, like, the path is the goal, because it's not quite like that. It's just, like, I've made my peace with not reaching my goal. Hmm. Well, but I think you spent too much time in the end zone. So if you have ever been in a room when someone dies or right after someone dies. Yes, I have. Yes. I, yes. But for me, my experience is there is a sensation of presence. There's something that fills the room that doesn't make any sense to me other than uh, that the consciousness has expanded beyond. Interesting. Um, that has been my experience. I don't pretend to know what happened, um, but I have spent so much time. So I started my death career touching the dying. Okay. Reiki, Reiki on dying. Okay, yeah. Oh, wow. And what started happening very quickly... Actually, one of the first times I did it, I ended up, the, the person who was, like, totally non-communicative spoke to me in my head. And, Whoa. But... They spoke to you in your head while you were doing Reiki on them, and they were already passed? No, they weren't passed yet, they, oh. but they were unconscious. Okay. Um, and I had a lot of experiences of... When I, was, when I was touching people or putting my hands near them, I would experience the light, like bliss, bright light, other being, and this was totally new to me. Right. Um, and I didn't understand what was happening, and now I've, I, since then, have started um, reading more of the literature on shared death experiences, mm -hmm. which are like near-death experiences, but it's a, a living person who's experiencing what the dying person is experiencing. Wow. And, and now I understand that what was happening to me is I was having repeated shared death experiences, you know, with people who were, who were dying. Um, and I ended up stopping doing, I ended up quitting hospice volunteering because I, my motivation, I, got, I started to really question my motivation. Was I going to support people who were dying or was I going to get another you know, dose of bliss, another, like, paranormal experience. Like, it got weird, and so I was like, I don't know what my motivation is, so I'm going to take a break yeah. from doing this. Because you were like, kind of getting high on, like, yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're like, yeah. oh, this is like, fun. <laughs> Wait. And it, feel right. it was like I had one experience where I just went in, and the person that I was working with was unconscious, but really fidgeting in an uncomfortable way, mm -hmm. which is a thing that happens in the death process, but right. it's really the, the feeling that I got was very much like the person being like, well, what are you, what are you doing? That's what, I didn't, it caused me to question myself. What oh, am okay. I doing? Why am I here? You right. Know? Um, and so I, I took a break after that and ended up not going back, but, um, but I was already well on my journey <laughs> and in working in under life care at that point. So. Because that's an intensely personal moment, if there ever is one. What, death? Yeah. Yeah. And people Absolutely. have compared death and birth. I mean, because you've given birth. 
And so, and that's like a really, I've heard people say that giving birth is kind of similar to dying. Of course, none of us know because we've never, well, I mean, at least not in this lifetime, you and Justin and I have not yet tied as far as we know, (laughs) not in this lifetime anyway. And so, but, but you've given birth. You're the only one of the three of us who's given birth. So, um, it's a highly personal and spiritual experience that kind of... There's a lot of other people in the room in a birth process, though, generally. Yeah, I guess that's true. Although there can be a bunch of other people in the room. But where, I mean, were you alone in the room a lot of times with the person who was dying or were there other people when you're doing the... Both. Oh, both. Okay. Yeah, because a lot of the volunteering that I did was in an inpatient unit in a, a hospice hospice inpatient facility and people in an inpatient facility are usually are often within they're they're either there because their needs are so acute that they can't be cared for at home or they are within seven days of dying mm-hmm. they need they need round the clock care um so it really was people who were very close and if their loved ones could be there they were mm-hmm. um but it was it was in a bit of a more of a hospital setting okay yeah and the difference, so now you're doing, a, a death doula is different in the sense that, well, for one thing, you're generally working in people's homes, right? Or do you go to... Yeah, I know. It would normally be, you know, one-on-one in somebody's, in somebody's home. Yeah. Um, and I run a, uh, I am part of, I founded a death care collective in my city. That's super cool. Yeah, so we're, we're Pittsburgh Community Death Care. Nice. We're a collective of holistic end-of-life care practitioners. So some of us are death doulas. There's a couple um, funeral directors, one woman who does home funerals, you know. Um, and so it's just sort of and a massage therapist and an art therapist. It's a range of people who are offering supportive services for end-of-life care. Mm. And why did I bring this up? Oh, because as popular as death doulas are in terms of people wanting to be one, mm-hmm. It's still very slow to catch on in most of the country. Hmm. In the bigger cities, it's probably more likely that mm-hmm. would be contracted to be a death doula, but we rarely get inquiries. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the inquiries we get are from people who would like advice on how to become death doulas, and very hmm. rarely do we get someone calling us and saying, I'm dying, or my loved one is dying, and, and I'd like some help in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it is individuals that we work with, although some death doulas at this point are pairing with hospice organizations or hospitals. It's becoming something that's more well-known and more mm-hmm. uh, desired. Well, it's interesting that, yeah, doula is also, I mean, because obviously I, when I think of doula, I think of a birth doula who's helping a midwife. What does that word mean? Doula. Yeah, that's an interesting word. Oh, I know this and I've forgotten right in this moment. Oh, <laughs> I have a dictionary right in front of me. I wonder if I yeah. should look it up. Hang on. But a birth doula and a death doula are both non-medical support people. Okay. And birth doulas, there are some birth doulas who are really annoyed that, that end-of-life doulas stole the word doula. And now you'll find doula is a popular word. I've met people who are elder care doulas. I've met people who are, I, I think there's other, like, basically turning into this phrase for helping people with transitions and phases in their lives. Right. And that is the thread. Whoa, from the Greek doule, a, fem- a female slave. Wow. That's a weird, yeah. According 
to the dictionary. I'm sorry. Do you have a, a definition, Justin? Yeah, I got it from the modern, from the Greek doula, female slave. Oh, interesting. From the 1960s. What do you got? Um, well, I'm looking at the internet. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but Wikipedia says a doula is a trained companion who is not a healthcare professional and who supports another person through a significant health-related experience such as childbirth, miscarriage-induced abortion, or stillbirth, or non-reproductive experiences such as dying. So a trained companion who is not a healthcare professional. Companion. I think companionship is the piece, but it was typically always a word that was associated with, with childbirth. Yeah, that's how I knew of it. Yeah. But I didn't know this this connection. I always find word origins to be fascinating. Oh, absolutely. So it's from the Greek word for slave. For female slave, particularly... And that makes sense that a female, so we're talking also about a doula being a companion to some sort of healthcare-related, health-related event or transition. Right. Um, I mean, certainly on a gut level, it makes sense to me that a female slave would be much more likely to be a companion. Right. Right, yeah. So, where were we? Transitions. Transitions. Oh. Transitions, yes. Yeah. So, I, my favorite part of being a college professor was helping young people transition from being children to being adults, or at least from school to career or mm-hmm. whatever. I loved being an advisor. Mm-hmm. I loved helping people figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. And by the end, I was really, um, I, I was really being quite subversive. I was always subversive, to be honest. Like I taught all my classes. I was like, there's no right answer. I want you to think, which really scared a lot of students. Because I was like, I'm not looking for a particular answer. I'm looking to see that you're actually like using your brain and critical thinking. Nice. Um, That's really cool. What books do I check for that, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I caused a lot, of, a lot of students who really had learned from their child left behind that you just had to figure out the pattern and like figure out what do I need to do to get an A and just do that. Those kids would cry. They were so oh, terrified wow. of my classes because I actually wanted to know what they thought. I would have and loved your classes. You sound like a really good professor. They were so trained to, like, not consider themselves and Mm -hmm. not use their critical thinking. And it was so scary, right? And so there's two pieces here. One is that when I realized I was quitting academia, I freaked out because my entire self-worth was built upon the brainwashing of grad school, which told me I had to stay in this career forever or I was a failure. And... I realized I was leaving academia and my self-esteem was shot and I thought there was something wrong with me. And the last time, I almost dropped out of grad school, but then I talked to a career counselor who gave me permission to quit, which gave me the second win to finish, right? And and so I went to see um, my one of the members of my dissertation committee, who also happened to be my best friend from high school's mom, which is a long story. But I drove from Pittsburgh to Massachusetts and sat on her couch and sobbed and told her I didn't know what to do and I was quitting academia. And what I expected her to do was to give me a pep talk that would, like, get me to, like, reorient and go back to the grind, right? And she looked at me and she said, you know that being happy is more important than anything else. And I kind of did this, like, internal double-take, like, wait, you want me to be happy? Like, I can put my, my happiness is relevant here, <laughs> <laughs> um, And it, it changed my life. 
Hmm. And it did, and that moment, it didn't, I didn't drop the shame. I didn't drop any of it. I got even more confused. But from that moment on, every student I advised who was really, really seemed to be being hurt by academia or didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. I said to them, you know, the most important thing is for you to be happy. Hmm. And I had so many students who said, nobody has ever said that to me before. Wow. There's so many students who thought, oh, well, I have to figure out what career, and I have to do this, and I have to do that. And I was like, no, you really don't. You get to decide this is your life. You get to be happy. Or, I mean, I mean, we don't necessarily get to be happy in life. But the point being, I was like, it's okay to choose what you want to do. Right. You know, and it was mind-boggling to me how many of my students were never told that. And so that became my other subversive mission, was to encourage kids not to go to grad school, not to go right to careers, to find themselves. Mm. Um, and so that was the thread to death. Actually, I guess there's more than one thread there. One is helping helping people through transition, mm-hmm. and one is helping people actually become in alignment with their truth, whatever that is. And it's not for me to know or tell people what's right for them, but the role I tend to play is holding a safe space so that people can actually center and figure out what they need. Hmm. I guess, I suppose, in a sense, you're helping people to transition mm-hmm. into death, which is mm-hmm. either, I mean, we don't know, I guess we can't know, but there is, I'm, I'm of the persuasion or I, I, I'm leaning towards believing that there is something more, um, I've been reading uh, a lot about, like, Justin and I have both been reading this book that's kind of the history of consciousness. It's, uh, yeah, we're actually going to be talking with the, its author, Eugene Iandi. It's called Dimensions of Being. Anyway, to check that out. But, um, yeah, um, but then listen to our podcast or uh, talk with him. Um, it's interesting because it's talking about like um i mean he's of the belief that that consciousness does indeed continue after death and that in fact it was here before we were born you know that the consciousness is kind of like this constant and we um are connected to this bigger consciousness that's kind of the source of of everything i get the i get the i get that there's levels of it there's something transcendent ultimately and we're we're operating at different levels depending on where we are in our life and our development as a person for example you know a child is less conscious than you know a teenager is less conscious than an adult there's a developmental process and a growth of consciousness right and so what it is that leaves at death i don't i don't know but the body certainly doesn't stick around in its same form no yeah i'm i'm curious how the development of consciousness would correlate with the uh progression of the brain growth because i would think that if consciousness is something bigger and transcendent and ever present right i i, I I'm curious about how the physical body would affect that. I don't have any answers on this, but 
when I think consciousness, I, I guess that maybe my question is, what? How are you defining consciousness? Yeah, that's where it gets. That's where it gets fuzzy, and like it starts as like a zero point and the nothingness of it all, and somehow that fluctuates into being that creates the you know the substructure of matter, which then you know evolves over the billions of years into you know an organism. Have you ever read that book um, by Eben Alexander, Proof of Heaven? I guess he was a neuroscientist. And he like. It's amazing to me how many books I haven't read. Oh, okay. No, but anyway, I'm aware of that one. I just haven't read it yet. Well, what's interesting to me about the book is that um, so he, I guess he went into like a coma, and there was like no recorded brain activity, and he talks about going to basically what he described as heaven, where he's, you know, really conscious, aware, but he doesn't have any. What what disturbed me was like that he was completely aware and conscious, but didn't know like exactly like who he was or like remember. Oh, I'm even Alexander. He just went to this place and he was fully conscious. So there's this idea of like being like having the consciousness aware that I am, but I get really scared, and maybe it's because I'm. I'm not enlightened or whatever at the right level of consciousness because I have too many attachments, but I get scared of like, well, what, what, what does it mean to be conscious if I have no body and I have no story and I don't know my history and I'm just simply being and like, wait, but what about, what about all the stuff I've been through? And what about, right? Yeah. Well, who was a, a Buddhist, uh, he was actually yeah. Allen Ginsberg. He was Allen Ginsberg's guru. You know the guy who he started in Europa, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. he one of his one of his quotes that I like, and I won't. I'm not quoting this exactly, but that what continues on is your bad habit. Hmm. Right. So I was going to say you don't actually get to uh, <laughs> you don't get to like continue on as you, but all the stuff you haven't resolved oh, right. flows on as an energy stream. Oh wow! Oh, that's the reincarnation, right? Okay, I'll probably definitely oh, be I re- in it now. Re- <laughs> okay, I guess I'm coming back. Yeah, I really wanted to say something in response to that. Your your fear of you not existing, but there was something that you said, and I lost the thread because I got excited about that trunkla quote. Oh. Um, so like the story, you know, like I I lost, oh. I don't have my story anymore, and that's what scares me is because to me, especially being somebody who's I love, you know, writing and reading and I love the story, you know, and and to me, and history is what fascinates me about, I mean, just like the fact that this book was about the history of consciousness and it talks about like the beginning of time, the singularity and the big bang. And then, you know, the, the history of our species and, uh, all that stuff is really fascinating to me. And, and what so what scares me i guess what scared me when i read that book was like this idea that that we would lose a sense of who we are and what also it's interesting though because you hear about people remembering i don't remember my past lives at least not i'm not conscious of them now but if i had any past lives but i know you know you hear about people who who have past life recalls and like or or if that's what they are you know, and like they, 
they do retain these informations or can access them. I have seen far too much unexplainable things. To I don't I I just have seen enough that makes me believe that all of this is weirder than we can possibly wrap our brains around. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> what you made me think of was a couple things, but one of them was so when I was on my fortieth birthday, I burned all of my journals. Wow, why? I had journals from when I was eight, uh, going back to being eight years old, and I kept all of my stories and all of my sense of identity in these books where I could go back and track what happened, who was that person, you know, like all of these things. And I got super into Buddhism, and I was like, I'm not my stories, and I burned all my journals. Oh, that freaks me out. I, I couldn't do that. Oh, wow. I, I just couldn't see myself doing that. My journals are just, like, I'm terrified of that. Right, right. But, okay. Yeah. So I, I've been, I think this, this uh, apprenticeship with death that I've been going through, and, and more recently an apprenticeship with grief, which I don't think we have time to discuss, but that's been really fascinating um, and painful, is I have been, I have gradually let go of my stories and only, or at least I'm not defining myself by my stories anymore. And the, the other thing that was coming up to me is the last time I had an experience with psilocybin, um, I, I, I haven't eaten a lot of mushrooms in my adult life. As a teenager, I would eat them by the handfuls and things were a lot less powerful back when we were younger. <laughs> but, um, uh, anyway, this was the most powerful mushroom trip I'd ever been on. And I did not understand the dosage that I was taking at the time. Um, but I lost all, uh, I lost all connection to having a body. Wow. Like completely no, I was, gone like I, 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 I was disembodied I was not there was no body were you like out of body like were you having an out of body experience or just no I just was <laughs> existing without a body wow right? and it was and I was like highly aware of the fact that I like was not embodied but wow. I wasn't anywhere else I was just like without a body interesting and and I suddenly became highly aware about how aware of how all of existence is woven together with stories. That everything we experience is all just one big story. Wow. You know, if you think about that, even from a scientific perspective, right, everything we experience is filtered through our brain. Yeah. And filtered through our senses. So we're never actually directly experiencing what uh, the external stimulus is all filtered through. It's all a story that we're creating. Hmm. Yeah, right. On one hand, you could be like, well, how the fuck would I ever know what reality is? Right? And on another hand, on the other hand, it gives you it gives me so much more freedom to relate to the world in whatever way works for me, mm-hmm. and that to accept that there may not be one absolute truth, that it may all be just like completely weird and nonsensical, um, and yet there are all these threads that come up all the time that do seem to make some coherent sense. And and again, I know we really don't have time to discuss um, probably all of my. Paranormal experiences. We've got time. We've got some time. What is time? I mean, well, I just looked at the clock and realized it's not as late as. Oh, okay. (laughs) But well, have have you heard of the Akashic Records? The idea that everything is stored like holographically, and I don't know that that basically the universe is a holograph, and where and and all the information that has ever. The stories, the 
is somehow stored in like, like energetically. That makes a lot of sense to me as much as, I, you know, as much as just stuff on this planet is fractal and holographic. Yeah. And if it were, I, and, and, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of more and more evidence, I think, suggesting that time is not linear either, that everything's actually happening all at once. Right. But we just, as humans, can't process it that way, so we, we process it linearly. Um. I don't know. I can't cite any evidence for this, so I'm, I'm basically pulling this out of my ass. <laughs> Wait, I don't know that everything's happening all at once, but everything exists. I don't know. It's hard to, like, what is happening? I mean, what, <laughs> what is happening? What's happening? Man? What's happening? <laughs> is this actually happening? <laughs> um, I mean, but everything exists. Like, all time is here now, right? Be here now. But all time exists in the present moment like a line you can imagine and we're just on one part of that like what's happening now is what is the the focus like ah how do I describe it um so I don't know that it's all happening at the same time we're all like it's spirals unfolding compressing going up and down and you have your place on it, and so it looks like a line. But it's all just happening. I was just reading about how, like, the... Well, I was reading about DMT. Have you ever experienced DMT? I have not. Okay. I'm very curious about it, and I've read yeah, a lot about it, but I Me too. Not. I know, I've, I've been thinking about ayahuasca. Anyways, I guess that um, this is saying... I, I know I'm getting into our next podcast territory, but... Basically, it's saying the DNA, all living cells emit both photons of light and photon, phonons of sound, and they're called biophotons, and it's how the cells in the human body communicate. They're released and stored from within the helix of the DNA molecule. Um, and basically, it's saying that the, the helix serves in a, as an antenna to both receive and emit this light. Um, the DNA has the property of attracting these photons into itself that causes the light into spiral through the molecule. And as the light spirals, it gains charge and momentum and actually implodes through a virtual zero point, like a black hole. Energy and information passing through this helical tunnel becomes like superconductive. It has zero resistance and travels superliminally beyond light speed. Light is a bridge to higher dimensional space and the gateway to overall minefield of consciousness. I wonder if that has to do with that light sensations that, that you were feeling when you were with people in those heightened states of transition as they were dying. It could be. It's interesting, this whole uh, phenomenon. Phenomena. I always get the plural there confused. It is um, this phenomenon <laughs> of the light, right? Yeah. Right. Um, where, I mean, if you look at, there are people who have, and I can't cite who the researchers are, but they're very easy to find on the internet, but there are people who have compiled near-death experiences, just experiences across culture, across ages, across religion, and yeah, there are usually. some of them vary quite drastically, but there are certain threads that are very common, and seeing a light is one of them. Right. And we can describe that neurologically to some degree, um, but... 
you know, we're we're also talking about people who have you know, you were you were referencing someone who did that author who was effectively brain dead, right? But having these Right. Yeah. And, you know, and the stories that I'm I'm abstracting away from the light for a moment, but the stories of people who are on the operating table right. and you know, who died and then could later describe what were on shelves higher up in the room that they never would have seen. Yeah, that's back. You know, that's that's pretty amazing. Like, how does that even happen? Right. If their eyes are closed, how can they see? If their brain is not, you know, how can they have these visions and see what's in the right. room? Right, and remember and record and encode that information. Okay, like that know. is an indication that there's something more going on. Mm-hmm than the brain and the eyes being the center, you know, it's, if that, to me, that's like, what? No, no, no. I mean, that, that's raises some serious questions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and also DMT and some of these psychedelics that you were saying, like you had this experience where you got beyond your body. And I think, I think psychedelics certainly maybe are a window into what what is beyond death offer us kind of a a, to get beyond the limits of our everyday consciousness certainly and i think that that's part of what death conscious i mean consciousness beyond death is obviously going to be i'm assuming it's different than and there's something I, i can only speak to um psilocybin in particular because that is my my hallucinogen of choice if I'm going to do something but yeah I feel like the mushrooms hold such a loving space for us Mm -hmm. in a way that even if we're not uh dropping the body or something like that it allows this loving safe space in which to explore Mm. our our fears as Mm -hmm. Um, I, 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 assuming that we're we're actually creating an environment in which we're engaging with these substances that is loving and safe. Right. There is an opportunity. I really have always felt like mushrooms just really, really love us. Right? Yeah. They they want us to be well. And you think about how mushrooms as a as a species function on this whole planet. They also they are like a story threading everything together. Right. Right. Oh, they they counsel with death too, don't they? Mushrooms. Don't they feed on decay? Yes, right? So they break things down. Yeah. Yeah, they're fun guys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, yeah, I've had my experiences with psilocybin as well. And I always found that they seem to really connect connect us with nature. Like I remember the trees seem to be laughing and the plant. I always like gravitated towards plants and uh, just... Also, like, there's this kind of funny, like, they're they're very funny. It it seemed to have a humor to them. Like, everything seems very funny. And, yeah. And, uh... Certainly, there is a lightheartedness, for sure. Right. I've also had some incredibly terrible mushroom trips. Uh Oh. But that was mostly from my teenage years when I didn't really understand what I was doing. And some adult had told me that she used mushrooms to, to process things. Oh, wow. So to me, that translated into every time I was in a bad mood, I'd eat a handful of mushrooms <laughs> to work through it. Oh. <laughs> not, not a smart thing to do Maybe as a wild teenager, you know. But, right. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I'm thinking through my list of all the weird paranormal death-related things I've dealt with, 
And I have nothing that I can pin to something scientific. I have nothing that I can definitively say to you, oh, yes, and then this happened. Mm-hmm. No other way it could be explained. Right. Um, you know, like, there's too much of what I experience is subjective. I just have stopped trying to objectively justify um, what I experience. I don't know. It's so hard to say because so many of the things I experience only later did I read about them. Right? right. So many of the things I experienced only later was it was I realized, oh, yes, that's a thing. Or like, give us an example of one of your experiences. Well, for example, um, doing Reiki on people and having beings show up and lights happen and, you know, like experiencing the light and bliss. I didn't know what that was, but it never happened to me before. And it was only years later that I read about shared death experiences and they were describing exactly what was happening to me. Wow. Okay. Um, so I guess that's an example. And ever after that, every time I do Reiki or receive Reiki, um, dead people show up and give me messages to give to people. Wow. Stopped doing Reiki and receiving Reiki because I didn't ask for that. Right. (laughs) That must have been a little difficult. It was like, I was like, wait a minute. You were sort of, uh, what would be called a medium. Right. And I'm like, I I, I was raised by a new age hippie and a skeptic. Right. No disrespect to my parents if they're listening to this (laughs) at some point. But I always had this split between the rational and the quote-unquote spiritual. Mm -hmm. And I always really tried to honor the skeptic and prove everything. Mm -hmm. And and I always, so, but I I guess actually what comes, somewhere along the line, I became very skeptical of people with powers and that couldn't be explained with rat with with the scientific method with our our scientific our agreed upon western scientific tools right right if you can't localize if you can't explain it it's probably bullshit right i kind of bought that line but not really like i knew that wasn't necessarily true but i had a lot of like pride around it like i don't want anybody to know that these things are happening to me. I am certainly not hanging out a shingle saying, I'm a medium. Come to me. Right. You know, it's like, right. that's the last thing I want people to be right. for. Well, we and yet at this show. point, it actually really actively informs the work that I do. Um, I just don't talk about it. I don't advertise right. it. Right. Um, but, so I've been talking around it the whole time and not actually giving any examples because I haven't been able to pick one. <laughs> It's okay. So I've been waiting for you to ask a question where it just uh, naturally came up. Oh, yeah, no worries. I mean, and maybe this is something that's difficult to talk about. I don't know. I mean, it it, it is kind of something that is a sensitive subject, it seems. I mean, I don't know. I, I like... It's hard for me to talk about my experience of, you know, being in the room when my my best friend died, you know, and my partner... And, uh, but I will say that it was, it, it reminded me of a psychedelic trip, um, that there was something very, and so that's interesting, um, that it, it just, it really changes the atmosphere in the room. It changes the, 
it, it, it like brings you to another level. It feels like it brings you one to another level of consciousness. Um, uh, that's one way to describe it. There's also a clarifying. I mean, it's, it's intense and it's overwhelming, but it's also like, I feel like it brings me to a point where I'm more fully present. Like when somebody is actively dying, mm-hmm. I am more fully present than I am most of the time because whatever, most of the rest of my life, because whatever's happening is just so, the consciousness is so, <laughs> consciousness is so dense and that's a horrible description of consciousness because my, when I use the word consciousness, I'm usually talking about like that blank awareness that's. Right. Underneath our personality or our thinking, it's just that thing that is aware. Um, but uh, it's an intensification of energy that, at least for me, brings me so fully into the present moment that it feels mm-hmm. more real, even in its weirdness, than most other moments of my life. Now, you meditate as a practice, right? So that, that's another way beyond psychedelics, obviously, to get into that, I feel like. I mean, I'm not an expert meditator, but I've started the practice again and I've done so in my past. And I feel like there are moments in meditation when you get to that point of being really present and aware in in that space of like, I guess that's kind of the goal of meditation, I would think is or maybe not goal, but like... Depends on the type of meditation. Right. But to to get to this point of kind of peace and uh, peace of mind and, and tranquility almost, or that just this, but also really aware, like really present in the moment. Yeah. And again, I think that's what death does for me, right? It brings me right back to now because honestly, none of us know, you know, I could have a heart attack five minutes from now. Oh. I probably won't. I hope not. <laughs> Jeez. You know, I'm sorry. That's freaky, but you know, oh, it's like, where else would I want to be right now than right here experiencing, you know, my the feeling of my clothing and the, the richness of your voices. And oh, wow. Thanks. There's so much beauty in every moment. And I know this sounds really cheesy, but when considering death, it brings everything into so much clarity. Yeah. You know, I, have, I, had, I had a client, a client who had a shared death experience when her mother died, um, and she also had no idea. I've had two different friends who had shared death experiences when a loved one, actually both of them when their mother died, and they had never heard of shared death experiences, didn't know anything about this sort of thing. But the client of mine, um, she was like super rational in the medical field, in Western medicine, you know, and her mother died, and she re-experienced, this young woman re-experienced her own birth. Whoa. She was experiencing her own birth as her mother was birthing out of her body. Wow. This young woman for, like, afterwards, she, she said to me, she said, it felt like I was on a mushroom trip. Wow. The next week, everything was light. Everything was one. I felt as just everything was love, mm-hmm. you know, and she just had this, like, transcendent, almost psychedelic experience that slowly faded over time. Mm. But it's something about that moment when we're coming out in and out of this physical form. Mm-hmm. Again, I am assuming, you know, I'm assuming a basis that we're, we're an assumption that consciousness is continuing in some way, mm-hmm. at least for some time, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, I don't, you know, again, also, I don't remember, I don't remember dying, don't remember being born. I do remember being a baby, 
which is interesting. But um, so I can't speak to the transition myself. But if what I experience with people who are passing is real, and however you want to define real, like there's definitely something incredibly uh, passing through this space into something more vast, and it's it's just it's just magical. It makes me think that reality is actually so much more magical than we are able to perceive in the day to day because right. we're so focused on. Capitalism, money, yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, and yeah, and our egos and our like little mundane, yeah. But I think that's ah, it. Just like I just immediately thought, oh, the mushroom trip, yeah. Like it took me out of that mindset, and it, I felt elevated, like. literally like I felt taller I felt elevated in my body it was like oh wow this is really magical like and it it really lets you I mean you know and I'm not saying you know people have to go and experience psychedelics to to see it but it does it is a doorway that helps you like get it you know and, and understand like wow this is fucking magical right and uh, and you ever jump out of an airplane? I know, but I want to really badly. Cause I think you're like, <laughs> okay, last lit- night I had a dream about s- that. That's ironic. I'm just saying like last night yeah. I saw people skydiving in my dream. Wow. I was just thinking, uh, the link there between meditation and psychedelics is thinking about, um, their meditation teacher, Mark Griffin, who died a couple of years ago and he's in the, uh, he he's in an offshoot of the Siddha Yoga lineage, um, but it, I love the way he talks about meditation versus drugs. He basically said that drugs can take you where meditation takes you, but the problem with drugs is that they wear off. Right. Right. And so drugs can give us a taste of something, and they may even lead us to something more, um, you know, can like lead us right. within ourselves. Right. But eventually that, that fades. Right. So it informs us and may shift our life path that learning to access those states within ourselves through meditation um, gives us such agency right. in a way that depending that having to depend upon a plant, it's just very different. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. One thing I see is this kind of fascination with, with I guess it's these murder mysteries. <laughs> it's like a huge phenomenon. All these murder podcasts and whodunits. Mm-hmm. I think people have this like sort of fascination with death that is a bit taboo. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I think it is getting close to something. And we've been through this pandemic, and people have experienced it more probably than ever before. I am halfway through a podcast um, from. The Sand Organization, Science and Non-Duality, they, it's an interview with Chris Fields that they just had recently, and he's talking about, he's talking, you know, you said sex and death is taboo, but Chris Fields is talking about uh, death as an evolutionary, how death is an evolutionary feature, and how, like, most life doesn't, is immortal, and that humans, you know, humans are, you know, like, the, the amount of living things that actually die is very finite, so this is, this is a whole other thing, but he was talking about, he's getting into this idea that the 
something about how the need for reproduction brings about death, like this connection on an evolutionary level between sex and death, which I found really fascinating because we often lump them together. In astrology, they get lumped together in the eighth house, you know, in Scorpio, and, you know, just, but like, it's like sex and, why would sex and death be linked, right? If we, other than them being culturally taboo, like, what is that? Thinking about, like, um, the moment of death, we have acts that we, like, expand back into this consciousness and, and one view of things. And I've heard it said that, you know, in, in many meditation traditions, when we're talking about accessing that, like, witness state, that you have it for a moment when you sneeze, but you also have it at the moment of orgasm. Orgasm, I was going to say. Yeah. So, and, and of course, you know, the French French word for orgasm, right? The little death. The little and, death, right. Right. So there's, there is this, there's something there. And I don't know what it is, but, um, but I, I want to relate it to consciousness. Well, and also like the loss of ego, like at the moment of orgasm, you're just beyond your ego. You're kind of, I mean, I'm assuming you, you just kind of go into this, like, like let go, this release of kind of... <laughs> It's something I'm fascinated by because that's what they say, but I'm, I'm always, I, I swear I miss it. I'm like, I'm still. <laughs> I want to watch it happen. I still have my ego, man, but it feels good. Right, right, right. No, I don't know. Of course you would. <laughs> yeah, I probably, yeah, very funny would. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> Linguist. Yeah, Justin is also a, um, uh, linguist by, I mean, he, he loves words and he has, he loves puns and he's always finding interesting, uh, little like revelations and revelations in language, language. like re <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so the story that keeps coming to mind that I actually, I, I will admit I told in another podcast, but it's buried somewhere years ago. Okay. But I'm thinking about as I entered into this, it's something I mentioned this earlier in our conversation. I'm just thinking about like what what makes a good story that seems sort of objectively like interesting. Also, when I first started doing Reiki in the inpatient unit, it must have been my second day there, and I'd go into the inpatient unit and I'd say to the nurses, you know, who might want Reiki, and then I would go into a room. I usually had a flyer with me. I'm really well versed. I have a, because I have a foot in both the New Age and the scientific world, I can talk about I can talk about metaphysical things from a science perspective. So even though there is no science to say what Reiki is, there's science to talk about the benefits of it, and I've mm-hmm. seen that research, so I could go in and talk about it in a number of different ways. Right. And so the nurses would, you know, tell me which rooms would be a good idea, and I always hoped that it would be an unconscious person with no family because I was super shy. Um, and uh, and this day they said you know this particular room and I walked in and there was there was an older black woman lying in the bed with a younger black man sitting next to her in a chair watching the football game and I mentioned race specifically because Pittsburgh Pittsburgh is a surprisingly segregated city um, in this day and age, um, and, and and as a white New Englander, I've never quite known how to navigate race in this city mm-hmm. um, because I was taught to be colorblind. I mean, it's much easier now, but this was this was like this must have been about eight years ago, 
Right. And I was still trying to figure out how to negotiate, navigate different spaces. Right. And so, and I didn't culturally, I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of cultural You're from Maine. grounding yet. So am I. Um, I know. And so I walked into the room. I said, you know, I'm offering Reiki. Is this something that um, sounds okay? And the young man said, that's fine. And the woman in the bed was out. She was unconscious. Okay. Close to death. And she was curled up in the bed. And one of the things about doing uh, energy work in a hospital is like, if you're doing it, if you're doing it in your home with a massage table with a, an ambulatory person, you know, you can you get them to lie down. There are certain positions to use, but if somebody's in a hospital bed and unconscious, you don't, they, you work with them in whatever position they're in. Right. Right. So she was curled up on her side and I started doing, you know, I started doing the, the energy work and start, I was starting with her head and going down to her feet. Although now I would never do that order mm-hmm. because in Tibetan, in Tibetan practices, you just never touch the feet because you want to make sure the spirit goes out the top of the head. Oh, okay. And so anything I would end with the top rather than okay. ending with the feet. Okay. But started with her head and I'm starting to move down to her torso. And as I get, or as I get, as I'm putting my hands on her torso, I felt flooded with love. Wow. It totally caught me off guard. Here I am in this room where I am uh, culturally uncomfortable because I don't know how I'm supposed to be acting. This young guy is sitting in the chair, in this easy chair, watching the football game. You know, it must have been a Sunday and there was a Steelers game. You know, I, you know, didn't really know how to interact or what the relationship was between these two people. And suddenly I'm flooded with love. Like wow. my whole body is filled with love. I was like, what is this? Wow. And then I realized there was like an, a, a movement to it. I was, I was touching like her heart area. Yeah. And I realized there was a movement of it. And it wasn't for me. It was moving from her to this guy sitting oh, wow. in the chair. Cool. And I was like, oh, this is her love for him. Wow. And then in my head, I hear this woman's voice say, you can tell him I love him. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> like, I've never had anybody speak to me in my house before. And this woman's like, you can tell him. And I was like, fuck oh, no. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I can uh, totally see you. And, uh, <laughs> like, what? and I said, and I said in my head, I said, no, I can't. And she said, yes, you can. Like, uh, no, I can't. Tell him, geez. And she said, yes, you can. And then there was radio silence. And I'm like, can I continuing to do this treatment? And I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. What do I do? What do I do? I just started volunteering here. I can't do some weird metaphysical shit. You know, like I can't like, I don't know what's okay to say. And, you know, just totally agonizing, you know, and like, there's no more voice in my head. I don't, you know, so I finished the whole treatment Yeah. and I am just like, what am I going to do here? I can't say if this really just happened, I'm not going to like say no to a dying woman's request. Right. Right. And like, nobody had ever spoken to me in my head before. So I didn't have any reason to think that it wasn't real. If that makes any sense. Like right. it totally caught me off guard. Yeah. Um, so I finished and I sat down on the edge of the bed and I looked at this young guy and I said, um, I'm new to volunteering here and I'm not sure what's okay to say, but I just wanted to tell you that when I was um, working on her heart area, I felt so much love and I realized it was her love for you. 
and he looked at me and he said, well, she's my mom. I hope she would love me. And he said it kind of aggressively. And I was like, oh. <laughs> wow. And then he paused and he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, thank you. It actually really means a lot to me that you would say that. Nice. Wow. He got up and I left. You know? Wait, you didn't tell him what he, you didn't tell him what she said? I didn't tell him that your mom said well, I didn't know it was his mom either. I didn't tell him that he said that. I just said I felt a lot of love. Nice. And yeah. and that was meaningful to him. Uh-huh. And I felt like that was like the best way at that time to navigate it because there was no way I was outing myself as hearing his dying mother's voice. Yeah. You were you were kind of punk rock. I mean, I met you when you were, I don't know if you were an anarchist or you were an Yeah. If you were an agnostic, at least, probably, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Um, skeptic, you know. Yeah. So you came from this background of kind of like this defiant punk meaner. Yeah. And when I was a teenager, I had quit all of my spiritual everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For sure. I was very angry. And I, I think was I met you. I, well, I, I, we used to go to Food Not Bombs together. Yeah. And not that I expressed myself as, as angry necessarily, but I certainly was, well, I was, I was, oh, I was fronting atheist, but secretly in my heart, I believed all the new age stuff. Right. <laughs> um, but I've always had, for many, many years, had a conflict between the two because I thought it had to be one or the other. You're like, wait, I'm not being punk. Right? I can't feel <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's funny, of course, though. Ultimately, I was so obsessed with being tough when I was a teenager. Yeah. And ultimately, over the years, what I've learned is that in my particular manifestation as a human, my strength is in my gentleness. I have so much more power yeah. when I'm not trying to be tough. Yeah, you've always been gentle. I, I don't think you were ever, despite your spiked hair and your piercings or whatever, you know. Oh, you were I always very gentle. I was lucky yeah. strikes a day when I was 20. It's unfiltered. That's tough, right? I met you at a fetish party. Did you now? Yeah, I was dressed as a punk and you were wearing um, these like yellow um, dishwashing gloves. You were in college. Oh. Sorry. I remember the gloves. Yeah, you were wearing those yellow dishwashing gloves and I was dressed as a punk. You said you thought I was cute. Probably did. Well, I probably thought you were cute too. <laughs> I'm sure I, I did. Forgotten. I've forgotten so much of my past, and now I can't even look it up because I burned all my journals. I know. <laughs> what the hell? What were you doing? This friggin' Buddhist, right? So you, you know, like now I rely on old friends tell me stories of what we did together because I have forgotten. And yeah. You know what? I'm okay with that. Like I realize that who I am and how I am is not dependent upon me remembering what I did. Well, it's probably all recorded in the Akashic Records anyway, hopefully, and, you know, eventually you can access it. I love that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a good story, though. Like, now you can actually be like, yeah, I burned all my journals. Like, that's really, you're so zen. And, like, yeah, you've, you've gone to, like, the next level. I think that means you're enlightened. You've burned all your journals and gotten out of body. Yeah, that's it. That's how you get enlightened. You just burn all your stuff. <laughs> and go out of your body. Right, right. <laughs> well. I'm not enlightened yet. I, I'm not ready to burn my journals, I don't think. You don't have to. 
that's the other beautiful gift that death has given me, is that I just don't feel like there's one right way to do anything. Like, everybody has their own what's true for them and what they need, and I am perfectly willing to let people have their own way and their own path and their own timing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, what else do you guys want to talk about? Well, is there anything that you wanted to know that, that is uh, left hanging? I don't know. Like, I, I wonder, um, so your, your goal, or I shouldn't, I keep saying goal, but your, your, um, as a death doula, your, kind of what your aim is to help people have a good death experience. I think affirm a good death sets people up, right? It what? It sets, a good death sets up expectations, right? Right. That that it that that my death can be a particular way, right? Or that I have to have, you know, the perfect music and the this and the that and all my family members making peace with each other and like if I if if the death doesn't happen if it's not good something's wrong with me, right? It just sets up an expectation that I don't think is fair. So you don't say that you're there to, you're just there to. I would say what is most important to me personally in the work that I do is, I mean, it's partially helping people prepare, but it's helping people make their peace with things as they are. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I guess inherent in like good death or best, best prepare, best that one can is like, it is on some level having some agency in it, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. But also, like, but I feel like more so than being able to choose the right music or get your paperwork in order or, like, prepare, it's great to prepare, right? Mm-hmm. It's great to make sure you leave as little stress for those who are left behind as possible, right? right? Because dealing with somebody's affairs after death can be a nightmare. Um, so, like, everything we can do to prepare is amazing. Mm-hmm. But my strength is in helping people make their peace with reality. Okay. Helping people make their peace with, oh, shit, I'm going to die, or, oh, shit, I've lost my loved one. I will never see this person physically ever again. Mm -hmm. Um, But also in finding the beauty in that, Mm -hmm. meaning in that. Um, So for me, personally, as I, I, I really don't even have a word. I use the term death doula to describe the work that I do because, honestly, there's no... There's like a canonical idea of a death doula, but canonical. No, like I know people who focus on after death stuff who call themselves death doulas, and people who focus on advanced care planning who call themselves death doulas. So it's, the, the the definition is really flexible. Um, but I, I tend to be more in what one might call spiritual care. Um, if I had to define my my aspect of of death doula ship, it's it's really in that, it's really in finding meaning, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and making our peace with, with life. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think in, you know, in our culture, well, you know, we, we're in a culture where I think um, it's interesting to me because um, the Western and Eastern approach to death and dying is very different, I think. I find, I mean, hopefully the West is getting more clued in, but I feel like, you know, it is oftentimes we're trying to prolong life as long as possible. Death is the thing to be avoided. Death is like, oh dear, we, you know, we fear death. 
generally? I mean, we're taught to fear it. It shows up beyond just death, though. That's the thing that I think a lot of people miss. And I'm not saying that you're missing it, but that this fear of death yeah. ripples into every other part of our life. Right. We are trying to make everything permanent. Right. Relationships, jobs, money, and we work our asses off to keep everything static. Right. We're so attached. Those are our attachments. I just have to have enough money. I just need to do the right thing so that my partner will never leave me, you know. And then people get blindsided by their terminal diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, I did all, I ate all the right food and I have cancer. Right. Like, I would have eaten cake if I had known <laughs> I was yeah. going to get cancer anyway, right? Um, or I did all the right things and my partner fell in love with somebody else. Right. What the hell is that? You know, like I did everything to be the perfect person for them, you know, and instead of showing up in every moment, right? Mm-hmm. Fear of death causes us to, sh- I, 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 maybe I'm not making this connection well enough, but our desire to make things permanent mm-hmm. causes us to not show up for things as they change, mm-hmm. right? To, to, to ignore or try to stop change. Right. Whereas reality is actual, actually constant change. Right. Um, and so my apprenticeship with death and grief has, has brought me into the present moment of like seeing things as they are or trying to see things as they are in every moment. And that means like flowing with things coming and going all the time. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there's a lot of grief there as I make my peace with the fact that I'm never going to get to hold on to any of the things that I really like. And that in every moment, the things that I like are changing. Like yeah. my likes are changing, but also the things are changing. It's just, it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess I'm learning to dance. And my mission is kind of to help other people to dance with the flow of things and find the beauty in it. Rather than like actually denying reality in, in an effort to not suffer. Right. You know, idea how we got on that topic. Oh, just while we're talking about, you know, death. And I was thinking about, you know, I also, as I was um, thinking about one of my fears was I had no experience um, when I sat next to, you know, when I was there for my partner passing, I, I didn't know what, um, what to do. And I, um, uh, I did have the, uh, fear that, well, I wondered, like, I mean, you obviously, I think the Western approach is like, well, and I don't know if the Eastern approach is too, but you want the person to be not in pain. You know, you want them to be peaceful or at peace. And so, you know, generally they're doped up on morphine, right? And I don't know if this is the case with people you are with, if they are given morphine. And that's generally... That's generally the way. how people on hospice are treated. But I, I have been with some Buddhists who uh, opted for lucidity over comfort. Yeah, and see, that's what's interesting to me is um, is how does the morphine affect that experience of the, the death experience? And is the person, because I have this gut feeling that you want to let the person really experience that 
in, in like purely, you know, experience this really profound transition and let them communicate if they need to or whatever. And cause you've, you've reported that you're, but you've also reported that people have communicated with you. I'm assuming they were on morphine no, or I don't know. Oh yeah. 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 So they, so it seems that they, that the morphine didn't interfere with their ability to like get out what they needed, you know, like to relay some messages. I think the perspective that you might be referencing comes from Tibetan Buddhism. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead kind of thing. Yeah. And the Tibetan Buddhists recognize that in the death process, there are multiple opportunities to uh, gain enlightenment. Okay. Right? That as you are dying, as as the elements are dissolving, as the body is shutting down, and then after, for 49 days after, you go on this journey, and there are multiple points where you see your own consciousness you don't know it's your own consciousness and you run away from it rather than going toward it. But hmm. if you can recognize the nature of your own consciousness in that moment, you can be liberated from the whole cycle of human rebirth. Why do you run away from it? Or why is that? I don't understand. Um, so you see it. And because then... people either don't see it or they find it scary. There are certain points at which your own, you know, your own, um, Karmic obstacles become demons, and very oh, yeah. again in the Tibetan in the Tibetan view, and the Tibetans have made a science of studying consciousness, right, over right. thousands of years. And um, but I think I, I really, honestly, and I could be wrong. Maybe some some practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism would contradict me. Although I will say I am a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, among a couple other. Um, I, I also practice in a. Uh, lineage related to Kashmiri Shaivism. Um, and what's that? Sorry, Kashmiri Shaivism. So it's a Shiva Shiva uh, worshiping is the wrong word, but it's a meditation lineage that specifically is in alignment with uh, practices honoring Shiva as okay. a manifestation of consciousness. Okay. Um, but actually, Tibetan Buddhism and this particular strain are related. So there's there's a lot of overlap in and or mutual support in those two traditions in my thinking. But I would honestly say that being that lucid at the time of death is really only relevant for people who want to use the death process to become, to, to finally liberate themselves. Oh. Um, I mean, there may be other reasons to be lucid. I want to be lucid just because I want to be lucid, right? I want to be present for it as it happens. Right. But... Um, I think that if for each person who's dying, whether or not, whether they choose lucidity or pain or, or comfort, is, it's just so uniquely personal. Well, I don't know that it's always their choice either, you know, and that's what bothers me is like mm-hmm. the consent, because I was like, well, I don't know what this person wants. And I don't know if, and then they're just automatically given morphine in our, in, in the Western you know, it's like, okay, well, we better give them morphine. We better, like, make sure that they don't feel any pain, like an ounce of pain. And I'm like, oh, gee, I don't know if that's what, you know, is the right thing. I don't, that's not... And this is my time to plug the my care directive, right? If you, we all have the uh, right to fill out an advanced care directive that says how we want to be treated right. in a medical situation if we can't actually speak for ourselves. Okay, and in that document, you can say, 
don't put me on morphine. Right. You can say, I, in mine, I actually have it written. I said, I don't want my pain managed. I want to be as lucid as possible. Maybe I'll regret that. I'll be like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But yeah. Wait, but at the same <sighs> time, there's problems with this too, because that yeah. document, in some states it has to be notarized and some it doesn't. It's not legally binding necessarily, though, on advanced care directives. And mm-hmm. somebody has to know where your advanced care directive is and bring it to the hospital. I, I think I gave mine to my primary care physician and nobody's seen it since. You know, like, it's just like there's some issues with the healthcare system so that it's not, it's not a foolproof, but at least it exists as right. an option. And then yeah. you have to, the person you list is the one who's going to speak for you. Mm-hmm. You really should have conversations with them. And I right. think we all, even if we don't fill out an advanced care directive, we need to be speaking to whomever is going to be making those decisions for us right? Um, and letting them know, these are my values. This is what I want, you know, because they're not going to, even if you write it down, they're not necessarily going to really know unless you talk about it. Right. And, and also as an aside, if, mm-hmm. so if you don't want oh, your dear. parents making decisions <laughs> for you, right. Yeah. Put something in writing. Okay. Um, and then also like your spouse, like there's a, there's a, it's like similar to the next of kin uh, right. list of, um, but it's, it's actually, this is something that I feel is really, really important and can't be said enough that people should just write down what they want Yeah, and have conversations with people about what they want. Do they know what they want? Do we always like, I, that's another question is like, how could, you know, but even like having exploratory conversations with our loved ones, right. like here are my values and here's where I'm confused. That makes sense. But at least you know me well enough, right? That yeah. you can maybe guess when when whatever happens in the hospital is totally different than anything I could have come up with as a scenario, you know me well enough and we've had enough conversations that you can make your best guess. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, hmm. Now in the Tibetan tradition, um, the, you know, the, the, they, they generally eschew morphine and the, they, or they, I'm asking the question, sorry. It's like, do they generally uh, not? I I would say that Tibetan lamas and um, uh, people who are really engaged in spiritual practice um, would choose not to be as sedated Mm -hmm. um, because they want to be lucid for that process. Okay. And, And in general... A practitioner of this particular type of Buddhism would prefer to die at home, yeah, and that the body not be touched for three days. Um, Interesting. So that the practitioner has time. The practitioner has time to uh, really set off on that journey and drop the body in an undistracted way. Because mm-hmm. touching the body can like really pull the person back or distract them. Hmm. And so, in my advanced care directive. I have said, don't, you know, if I die at home, don't touch my body for three days. Now, in the state of Pennsylvania, where I am, you can't, if I remember correctly, you can't have the body at home unrefrigerated for more than 24 hours. So. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's such a different, well, it's such, like, culturally, it's different. I mean, you mm-hmm. you have cultures where, I'm trying to think if it's down in South America, some, cult, some areas that I can't remember exactly where, I'm sorry, but. They have 
where death is much more accepted and you have the body there for, you know, five days or what, and the whole family comes to see. And, and, and here that's just totally not in the West. We're like, oh, well, it's dead body. We better, you know, take it away and get rid of it. It's got bacteria or something. Yeah. Okay. So two things there. One is the home funeral movement in this country is growing, right? Mm -hmm. The more and more people are opting to have their funerals at home, have their bodies prepared at home, say their mm-hmm. goodbyes at home. Um, people are bringing bodies home from the hospital and having, you know, keep, you know honoring mm-hmm. their loved one in their own home, washing the body, dressing the body, decorating the body, mm-hmm. bringing people to the house. So the old, some of the old traditions are coming back. Yeah. And I was just going to say, in, my, in theory, in my, advanced, in my advanced care directive, it says, don't touch my body for three days, you know, Somebody will come tuck dry ice around me because I have so many friends who are funeral directors. And I actually, at this moment, am living above the funeral home uh, with whom I've done my pre-planning. So mm-hmm. actually, not only do I live above a funeral home, you know, but mm-hmm. the funeral director who will care for my body is, is downstairs. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm well set up. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> in the way I want. To die. But, yeah. Um, um, cool. No, I, I think that that seems like a much, it just, it resonates more with me that way of that approach to death. Like, it, you know, instead of just like, oh, we, it's, I mean, no wonder we're afraid of death because we, we like shun it. We like, we lock it away. We'd say like, oh, I can't see that. We better, you know, put it in a box and put it in the ground and let's not, you know, we can't see that it's not something that we celebrate so much. It's something to be, you know, feared and mourned. And instead of like, Hey, let's celebrate this beautiful part of life. And, you know, can we, can we see death differently maybe? And I think that that's, I would like to see that shift. And I think if we honored death more, we would allow our, our culturally be more acceptable to have a broader range of emotions. Mm-hmm. Because as we're hiding death away, we also don't want to see people's reaction to death, right? So we lose our loved one, and then a week later, we have to go back to work, or maybe three right. days later, right? And our colleagues are like, and two weeks later, our colleagues are like, wait, aren't you over that yet? <laughs> you know, like people don't want to deal with our feelings, so they also don't want to deal with their feelings. Right. Um, I've had so many people, I remember the first time I had a it was like days after I finally accepted that I was a death doula and said it out loud. Somebody, a young woman called me. She was maybe 19 and her best friend had just died of a drug overdose. And mm. she was beside herself. And she was, you know, she was actually looking for a psychic. And this is another theme in my life. People always think I'm a psychic. And I'm always just like, nope, let's, let, you know, let's get at exactly what you need without me ever having to play that role for you. Because mm-hmm. when people go to a psychic or an astrologer or, you know, like when people seek metaphysical help, it's often for a very human need mm-hmm. that they're putting, they're projecting into, you know, I need to talk, you know, I need to have this spiritual thing happen to fulfill my mm-hmm. human need. Um, and there's also a very good reason for having a spiritual experience. So, I mean, I'm not, not knocking that. I'm just saying there are ways to keep people grounded in their humanness and right. help them feel. Right. But anyway, this young woman said, I'm beside myself. I can't stop crying. My coworkers are like, why, you, you know, why aren't you over this already? You know, she's like, I'm just so distraught and it's just, I'm, and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And I said to her, well, how long ago did he die? 
And she said, a week. And I was floored. I was like, wait, it's been a week. This is your best friend, and he died of a drug overdose, and you think you should be over it already? Yeah, no. <laughs> you know? And like, but it was like, oh, we have, we have no education on right. death in this culture. Right. And yeah, and so that has been part of my mission is to help people have safe spaces in which to grieve. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had people say that they thought I should be over done with my grief in a year and I wasn't and honestly you never I mean depending on what it is or how close you are whatever what the how deep the grief is I mean my view is that it never quite goes away you know the grief grief is something that stays with us but it changes it just gets like lighter and easier to live with and 100%. It, it changes us, though, for sure. Like, grief really changes your life, especially deep grief. I do want to, I want to reflect that back to you, that what you just said um, is the experience of almost everyone I talk to, that it never really goes away. It just becomes part of your life, and it becomes more bearable. Yeah. But you don't stop. And maybe the flashes of it become less frequent. Right. But it doesn't ever really go away. No, it just becomes part of who we are like any life-changing experience in a way, like, I mean, psychedelics, you know, they kind of change who we are <laughs> in a way. And meditation too, and all of these deep life experiences. Justin is very quiet. I was noticing that too. I'm also noticing that we've been talking for almost two hours. Wait, is Justin even there? Yes, Justin's here. Oh, he's just being very quiet. <laughs> Okay, so what what's happening? Are we are we maybe wrapping this up? I'm just I'm I'm listening. I'm I'm here. I'm present. Oh, good. You're just being in the moment. <laughs> well, I feel like we could talk for much longer, but it does. I feel like we've had a number of threads that have come full circle. Yeah, for sure. It's been really yeah. interesting. Yeah. I've, Is there anything else that feels like it hasn't been, but that still feels like it's hanging right now? That it might be nice to. Like an ideal world in the future, the future of death. Mm. What does that look like? How is that? Is it? And I know there's individuality, but I mean, as a as a culture, if there's something that we could do to make this like the perfect thing, oh, that would be your really interesting. Because when you said that, the first thing that came to mind, which isn't actually the an answer that's in alignment with what you just said, but I thought of. There was a movement, and I forget where it was, but recently there was a movement to bring death back to our our national parks and our uh, forested spaces. Hmm. And, it, and, and when I heard this, I realized I'd never even noticed when you go to visit a city park or, a, or even a state park, you don't see animal corpses because mm-hmm. they get cleared away from the trails. Mm. And that death is a really important part of the ecosystem and mm-hmm. that we... And that, um, and so there are movements in this country and around the world to start um, leaving dead animals where they are, so that 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 piece of the ecosystem can be revitalized. And I do feel like it is tangentially related to Justin's question because it is a I envision a reintegration of death into our culture, mm-hmm. right? So that um, it's part of the conversation. And you've seen in the past. You know, in the past decade, but certainly the past half decade, a resurgence or a, a, a the introduction of 
death cafes, right? Where there's specifically allocated spaces where people just come to talk about death in whatever <laughs> way that that comes up. Um, and that, that we're talking about it. We are, death is more visible that we're not hiding the dead in any of our spaces, right? In a lot of, in a lot of nursing homes, when somebody dies, they get whisked out the back door. The, right. the you know, the, um, person who comes from the funeral home to pick up the body has to go through the loading dock. Why don't we have people, why don't we have a little parade? Some, some, some yeah, places. The second line, yeah. Yeah. Where the body is brought out the front door and honored and people can show up and just honor that person as they right. leave, you know, right. like that we have these little rituals in our lives to honor death and to let it be visible and to let it be, again, be a natural part right. of our lives. And it's not going to be perfect. I mean, one thing we didn't even discuss is like the racial disparities in death, the, mm-hmm. the um, class disparities in death. You know, there's like, there's so much here. Death is part, is part of every, it, everything in our culture has a mirror in in death. Mm-hmm. Um, and just if we can bring that out, if we can make it, I feel like our relationship to everything in our lives would be richer and more honest if we saw death more often. So I think for me, my vision is not, I mean, I'd love for death to be more environmentally friendly, the, an increase in green funerals, I mean, green burials and, you know, human composting and all of these things. I do work part-time for a green cemetery, so I'm biased, but, um, I I do feel like just like there are ways that we could make death healthier, but I really my vision is just having death be present again, allowing mm-hmm. it to be part of the conversation, allow it allowing it to infuse our culture as something that is normal and natural and not something we're fighting desperately to get rid of. Yeah. Beautiful. I agree. I think I've always wondered uh, about graveyards like this there's so much space you know so much all this it's a lawn with these mm-hmm. you know, these bodies oh, and these and, the, and like what about like you know what about planting trees Wait, instead uh, how, how bad is it Pl- trees and um there the amount of chemicals the amount of right like, the formaldehyde um, and yeah and the, the concrete and like there's just all these rules about how these things have to be structured and it's just there's a lot there and I I'm not as well versed in it as or I'm not remembering all of it right now but um yes as somebody who you know the the green cemetery near where I live is it's, it's a forest and a meadow nice and you can't be buried with anything that isn't biodegradable wow cool so that both means that you can be buried in a shroud just just your body in a shroud or a pine casket or a cardboard box. But yeah. um, but it also means that your fake knee has to come out. Right. right. Oh wow. And that, you know, you're just allowed to go back to the earth. Right. That's and, really cool. Yeah. That see yeah, that just seems like so much better. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is like, you know, uh cremation is sending all these chemicals into the air and mm-hmm. there's issues with that too, even though um yep. you know, it's certainly I guess takes up less space in a way, but still, it's like, hmm, I, yeah. There's just the, the most eco-friendly. I mean, it seems like obviously we're in this time of environmental crisis. We've, I mean, everything from birth to death, everything in our lives, we have to think about like how can we make this 
I think we look back more to sustainable the, and the regenerative even. I want a Zoroastrian funeral. You've heard of those? Yeah. Yeah. What what what's a Zoroastrian funeral? I haven't really throw you off a cliff and let the birds eat you. Oh wow. Really? I thought you wanted your water to be drank or something. Well, you know, I'm <laughs> maybe one or the other. Just said he wanted his water to be drained and we'll drink drink from the water of Justin. <laughs> like, okay. okay. I guess I got a little time to think about it. Yeah, I know I oh sorry, what? I said I hope so. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a sip. I'll take a sip of just <laughs> wait. <laughs> a little sip. No, um I don't know. I like yeah, I just I I I want to be a tree. I mean, well. Mm-hmm. And uh commune with mushrooms and death as well. No, I I think that um all all of what you said resonates with me for sure that we need to green and make death more part of our lives and also green it, make it more uh, in harmoni- harmonious with the planet. <sighs> On that note. Yeah, thank you both so much for talking with me. This was really fun. This was really cool. Yeah, this is a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Helen. Yeah, thank you, Helen. I look forward to the next time we talk. For sure. Yeah, we could even have another a follow-up podcast yeah we we actually um we had a poet on and he was going to tell us about this story a ghost story about it, the um he saw the 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 ghost of ram das's guru and uh so he was going to come on again to talk about that so maybe do you have a ghost story that we can t- so tune in next time to hear more of Helen's ghost stories. Right. Okay. Well, all right. Take care. Okay. Thank you so much, Helen. You're welcome. Bye. This is a song I wrote after my best friend and partner died. Uh, so I was in the depth of my grief and I thought it would be appropriate to follow this podcast about death and grief. Um, It's called More Than Prayer. Sing. Mm-hmm.
Dream. Mm-hmm. 